Say amen. That's right. <laughs> I'll be honest with you today. I've been struggling with how to preach this sermon. And you, you may, may agree with me when I get done. But there's too many ways to preach out of the book of Ruth. You, you know, you, you can look at texts and you can say, we're, we're going to have this kind of heady sermon. This, we're going to look at the Hebrew text and see how it does it. And Ruth is one of these texts that you can do that because there's a lot of wordplay that we miss in English. There, there's transitions, there's repeats, there's all this kind of stuff that you can just look at from a literary perspective and, and just dig into it and spend days on it and still find something to do because this is one of the, the most well-told. Well not well told. This is a fabulous love story that was written in a way that just stood the test of time. You, you can look at, uh, there, there was once said that the pastor should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. I guess it would be a, an iPad or something in the other now. Uh, but the point was that you need to have one eye on the Bible and one eye what's going on in current events. The book of Ruth, you can do that. You can look at this text, and you can see how there's a, a mass group of migrants heading through, through Mexico now towards our border like they did last summer. And you can and use this letter as a treatise on uh, immigration. You can go either way on it. You can use it that way. There's other ways that you can use it. So how are we going to use it today? Well... There's an image that I've shared with you before, and I want to share again. It's called the power of ten. Now, the power of ten is a simple illustration. It's basically at zero magnification. It's what we see, everything going on around us. You can zoom in on something and get to a micron level by just keep increasing the magnification, and you can see at such great detail the things of God. The, the things of creation. I mean, you've got atoms and neutrons and blood cells and, and all this kind of stuff. We use that all the time. Or you can zoom out and get an incredible image of how small we are compared to this vast universe. I'm not going to zoom in, zoom out, and zoom everything on the text, but I want us to think about in terms of a grand story. Because Ruth is a story that was told and worth retelling. It is a story of an immigrant coming into a community, a new convert if you want to look at it from that perspective. But it is a great story of God's plan. So the story of God starts in Genesis, ends in Revelation, but we know it's much bigger than that because God is an infinite God. He is above time and space. Can't wrap my head around it. But he knows both past, present, and future, all at the same. He has a plan on how this is all supposed to come together, come to an end, and everything in between. We look at God's providence in this story, but we also look at free will. We look at the actors and the characters and try to decide, how are we to live into this story, or how is it supposed to change and shape our lives? But we have to first look at God's big grand plan. In the beginning, God created the earth. And in the end, he has won the victory over sin and death. And this is a story that come in between. This is the history of how God has intervened in our very presence. 
The most ultimate victory is when he sent his son Jesus to be born and to live a life like we did, but to live it sinlessly and to minister to the sick and the downtrodden and the outcasts, the lowly of loaves, to lift them up out of their depression and poverty, to give them a place of honor and stature, only to be killed, hung on a cross. But it was through that very act that he saved the world, that he saved everyone who would call on his name. Because when he died, he didn't just stay dead. But we celebrate every Sunday and every Easter the fact that he is raised again and lives among us. I heard a preacher one time use the expression, he is on the loose. That stone is rolled away. He is active and living and calls us to be his friend, his Lord, or he's our Lord. And so we look at the grand scheme, but then we have to drill down. We have to zoom in. How does this affect me? How does this apply to my life? Because if we only look at the beauty of the literary aspect of this story, we miss that connection to us. If we only look at it as a way to, to uh, draw public policies on how we deal with foreigners, we miss how it applies directly to us. Because one thing we will see in life is that there are spectators and there are participators. There are those who play the game and those who watch. We're in football season. We have those who go to a game and root on their team, but they don't get involved with the actual play. We have fans. We have the ones who are taking the hits and the blows and the bad calls and having to deal with it and move on. So how do we become a player and not a spectator? Well, if we're just looking to see what others do, we may never dig in. But let's look at the characters in this story. In chapter 1, we are introduced to a man named Elimelech. I'm going to say that wrong every time I try to pronounce it. I can say it a hundred times in my office and get it right every time I come up here. Nothing. But we have Naomi's husband. We'll go that route. He dies after leaving their homeland of Bethlehem. They move to Moab. Why? Because there's a famine so he moves. Sometimes we make choices in distress, don't we? Sometimes in distress, we don't always make the right choices. So let us consider. In chapter 2, we, we have Ruth and Naomi have returned to Bethlehem to kind of rebuild their lives. You know, they're kind of depressed a little bit. They're, they're looking towards not much future. Naomi is just bitter. What was the scene in Bethlehem? It was one of prosperity. It was a time of harvest. It was a good time to be back. The people were reaping their hard work. There was crops to gather in. There was crops to leave spread out on the ground so that when Ruth goes out to glean, she gathers a lot for her and her family. So what would it have been like if Naomi and her husband, we'll go that way, never left Bethlehem in the time of famine? There were those who stayed in Bethlehem while they left. They prospered in time. They outlived those hard times, and they stayed in the promised land that God had given them and said that if you keep my statutes, I will bless you in this land. Why did they leave? 
story doesn't tell us. Did God lay on their heart to leave this land, or was it just out of a source of mistrust? Mistrust that God will actually provide. We don't know. We know the results. We know that uh, Naomi's husband and her two, two sons died in a foreign land, and she returns home basically a broken woman with a daughter-in-law who has pledged her loyalty her, to her, but she's also an outsider. So sometimes in life, we are placed in front of us decisions that had to be made. And sometimes we can justify decisions in life, but those decisions will lead to outcomes that we don't anticipate. Now, that might not have been what happened here. Because we know God's hand was at work in the story. He was at work to bring Ruth into the lineage of David and ultimately Jesus and bring about redemption for the whole world. But what if they shouldn't have left? And because of these decisions, they got themselves in the place they found themselves in. Do we do like Naomi and just turn to bitterness and inward strife and blame our misfortunes on God. Seems like it's what happened here. But let's not talk about decisions. Let's talk about what happened. So we have Ruth, this daughter-in-law who pledges her loyalty to her mother, who journeys from her own homeland to the place where she knows cousins and aunts and uncles and mothers and sisters and brothers, a place where she knows the streets, she knows the food, she knows the sounds, a place where she's familiar with festivals and worship patterns and places to gather and get their own strength, a place where she is at home. And she leaves with someone she has only known for a few years, 10 at most, it says. And she goes to a foreign place, a place where the foods are probably a little different. The language is probably a little bit different. No, not necessarily a different actual language, but we all have our inside languages. We all have our common expressions that if we live there, we know. You know, there's that old joke where, where there, there's a small town that everybody knows each other so well and they all know the inside jokes where after a while they quit telling the jokes and start shouting out numbers. <laughs> they say, number one, the crowd laughs. Number two, they all laugh because they know the, the joke and the punchline. But for the, the outsider, the foreigner that came in, they have no idea what's going on because the number one is just not funny if you don't know the context. And so she goes to this strange place to love and care for her mother-in-law and to be part of a people, to be buried with her, she pledges. Where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. Your fate is my fate. She throws all her cards on the table and goes to Bethlehem. And so in chapter 2 opens up. The story has a little bit better twist and so Ruth decides she's going to go out and glean. And so we know from the book of Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and other places that there were certain laws on the table that helped uh, poor people and uh, resident aliens. 
They basically would tell you, uh, don't, don't clear your fields completely. Leave the corners. If you drop something, don't go back and pick it up. Let, let those who need, are needy in your midst have something to go and gather. It was kind of an early welfare system, but it was one in which you had to work a little bit at to get your, your gain. It wasn't just a handout token. And so we see this and we see Ruth going. And she just happens upon the field of Boaz. So we are now entered into a source of strength and happiness for Ruth and Naomi. And she goes and she's working that day. And then Boaz comes as a, introduced as a wealthy, well-to-do pillar of his community. He was known. He just so happens to be a relative of Ruth's dead father-in-law. And we don't pick up on, on our modern understanding very quickly, but there was this thing called kinsman or kinsman redeemer, family redeemer. And the way it worked was it was to carry on property, inheritance, and lineage of name because that was important to these people. It was a little bit weird. So if you had one of these redeemers in your family, here's how it worked. So you, you have a widow. Well, this, this family member would basically marry this widow to help produce a son because a son is what you want to carry on the family name, to carry on the property inheritance and all this kind of stuff. Well, the firstborn son, guess whose daddy it would be? Not the redeemers, but the dead husband. And so this child would actually be someone else's son that you are going to raise. Sounds strange to us, right? But far as legal terms and these kind of things, it can continued on the family line because they had provided an heir and a name. So when inheritance came, they had the inheritance rights for that family. And now if you have other ones past that, there's a split and all this kind of stuff. So it wasn't necessarily a great thing to redeem one other than honor and duty and privilege. And so it's a little bit kind of dicey when you, you get into that because it talks about splitting up money and assets. And if you've ever gotten involved with a family who has means and they pass away and there's not a very clear will, you just know how ugly that can be. And so Boaz is introduced as a possible candidate for this position. And Ruth just so happens upon his field. And so as Boaz is talking to his men, he, he asks a question in chapter 2, verse 11. And, or Boaz, um, but Boaz answered. He said, all that you have done uh, for your mother-in-law. Let me back up just a minute. So he introduced himself to Ruth. He basically says, stay in my field. I'll, I'll watch you, these kind of things. And Ruth asked, why are you honoring me? Why are you blessing me in this, this fact? Because she is very indeed aware of her status as a foreigner. And so Boaz answers Ruth. He says, uh, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to the people that you did not know. So Boaz knows her story. Not surprising in a small agricultural town that you know everybody's business, is it? But Boaz has found out about her, and, and once he recognizes that she's not one of his people, he kind of wants to pay her back. She's working hard. She's trying to provide for her mother-in-law and them so that they can survive. Um, so he says, stay here. Glean among my, my crops. Then again, he'll turn and tell his own servants, leave a little extra for her. 
don't, don't harass her. Don't, don't, don't attack her. Let her come drink from the water that we've drawn to, for our, our people. Let her do. But then he tells her this one thing. He says, the Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you um, by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, Boaz may have said this customarily, as a, a, a blessing on others. It's a common saying, you know, we'll, we'll pray for you to get better and these kind of things. We, we do these customary prayers or blessings today. We may not have the same formula, but this was one that Boaz used. As a pillar of the community, you would expect something like this from him. You would expect a blessing, calling on God to do it. We do that, don't we? We call on God to bless others. But in doing so, he was drawn into God's plan and God's providence. I don't think he knew at the time the implications of this one little prayer because he was going to be drawn in much more than that. Ruth, this kind of new convert. Boaz, this, this elder statesman of the community. This one who had lived under the refuge of God's protection all his life was now praying that she learn to live the way he had and may, that she would be blessed the way she, he has because of what she has already done. She has shown that she lives this righteous life by pledging herself to her mother-in-law. And so as the story goes, then she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And Ruth recognizes what Boaz has done. So now let's consider the story. We have some bad circumstances. We're not sure the reason why they ended up in those circumstances. Maybe it was choices that they made, maybe it was something beyond their control, but we do know sometimes in desperation we can make bad choices and justify our actions. We come to a, a, a stop in the road. We must move on. Ruth, instead of returning to her family line, pledges herself to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she travels with her back to a place she doesn't know. She's done all these things for Naomi so she could help provide for her. She probably provided for her on the travels, on the road. She was the younger one. I imagine she carried some of the brunt of the labor just to journey back. And now she was going out to glean in a field, to pick up after the reapers, just enough so that they may survive. People have noticed. They've noticed what she's done. Boaz has noticed what she's done. And he's like, oh, man, what a great person she is. Look what she's done for her mother-in-law. You know, we ought to bless her a little bit, right? We ought to just let her glean in our fields. Give her a little bit extra for what she's done for her mother-in-law. But we can separate it too easy. We cannot get involved too easy. We can zoom out and be spectators too easy. Because it's really ultimately up to God on how things go, isn't it? We'll all agree with that. It is God's powerful hand that does it. Yes. If I want to do it and God's not in it, it's not going to happen, is it? No. We can justify ourselves too easy. We can easily step back and just let God do it. 
kind of seems that way here. But as the story goes, we will find out more and more on how God's plan is really in it. And what Boaz hasn't realized yet, but he will, sometimes when you pray for others, when you pray for a blessing, for a source of a, a way that they may find resources, these kind of things, these material needs be met, just sometimes when you open yourself up to God and ask Him to do something about it, He has already planned what to do. There's a song by Matthew West that says, you know, God, what about all these people, all these things that I see? He said, well, I have done something. I created you. God created Boaz just as he created Ruth. He called him into a story of redemption much greater than himself, one that started in the beginning of time and will be told until the end of time, a story that he calls all of us in. How he chose a people to be a blessing to the nations. To be the receiver of God's grace and mercy. So that we may have the prophecies and the teachings and instructions on how to live as humans in relation to God Almighty. He has called us to join him in this story. This is not something that we read and enjoy as entertainment. But it is something we participate in. He called Boaz. He called Ruth. Ruth listened, and she followed her mother-in-law. And because of that, she became part of the lineage of King David, the greatest king that Israel ever saw. And because of that lineage, she also became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, who blessed all of us beyond measure. Was it because we deserved it? No. But it was because God loved us enough to call us, to have mercy on us, to give us a life greater than our own. And so at the moment we see here, Boaz is asking God to bless this woman because she is a good woman. We will find as the story opens that he has much more in plan for Boaz. He will eventually redeem Ruth and fulfill the love story that has been told generation after generation between a man and a woman and a God and a people. A sinful people that was prone to wander. And so I ask you today, where are you at in the story? Are you wanting to separate it and be this mental pursuit? One in which you, you like the connections and you see or and you're fascinated how all this comes together. Are you using it as a means to structure your society, plan your laws, be a, a moral judge to others? Are you being beckoned into God's grand narrative in which we all have a role to play? And sometimes as we play into that role, we just don't know how God's plan will unfold. Maybe we are called just to pray a blessing on others. But maybe that blessing is going to come about through us. Are you prepared to let God use you to bless someone else? To be part of the plan? Today we hear that call for Boaz. Next week we'll see how the story unfolds and all that go into that. But for now it's just enough to say, 
Start to listen. Don't just watch, but hear. Look for the opportunities. Because this isn't a spectator event. This is a field of battle in which we have players and we have those on the bench. If you're riding on the bench, that's not a bad thing because you're waiting for your opportunity to go in. We're not in the stands just rooting on, but we're waiting for our turn. We're not sure when it's going to come. We don't know what's going to happen out there. We may be a fifth-round quarterback, and there's no way I'm going to play today. I don't even warm up. I've seen injuries on the field of battle. They happen quicker than you think. And that opportunity may come a lot sooner than you're prepared for. So I'm asking you today, start preparing yourself if you're not in the war, if you're not at battle now. Because unless you ignore God's call, you will be in shortly. Please join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time that you have given us to come into your house. Lord, I pray for all of those who are present, that they will listen to your call, that they will take part in your plan, because we know that you have something far greater for us than we can ever imagine. And what this young girl did, and what this man of his community did, is being retold generation after generation. Because they saw the opportunities before them, and they listened to your prompting. And you redeemed them for all eternity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation, if you've decided to follow Jesus Christ for the first time, and like that, like everyone else to know about it, or maybe you've been visiting First Baptist Church, and today is the day that you are going to join our congregation. Please come forward. Or maybe you're simply in need of prayer. Come forward at this time.